Hello and welcome to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Lisbon in Portugal. And I'm joined today by Jonathan Fedugba in London and John O'Sullivan in Galway. Jonathan, how are you? Hey there, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Nice to be here with you guys. Looking forward to discussing some football. So yeah, I'm all good. Fantastic. And John, how are you? I'm excellent, thanks. Cheers for having me on once again. Brilliant, yeah. So uh, we can start off with England, I guess, uh, the Premier League. Obviously a very hectic week, a lot of things going on. John, what were some of the key themes for you this week in England? I think the only place you can start really is Old Trafford because there was only the 15 goals scored there over the course of a few days and in two games. Um, first of all, poor El Southampton and Rob Hasenhutl were on the end of another 9-0 defeat. And that's their second in 466 days, amazingly. And then United, full of that steam and full of that vigour, then dropped points to Everton in kind of calamitous fashion, despite leading twice in, in, a, in a goal-crazy three-all draw. So I think, I think Old Trafford is the best place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was a phenomenal week, really, for uh, Manchester United. Um, first, John, Jonathan, just touching on the 9-0, like, what were your thoughts on this game? both from a United perspective and from a Southampton perspective? Because, you know, as John mentioned, it is Hasenhutl's second 9-0 defeat. And, like, one 9-0 defeat is bad enough, but it was kind of almost part of the narrative of him learning from that defeat and kind of rebuilding his team and, and rewarding the patience shown in him by coming back and kind of really building a strong squad in the beginning of the season especially. But things have kind of gone off the ball for them recently and this second 9-0 defeat feels almost a bit like... A bit worrying, don't you think? Yeah, I think there were mitigating circumstances for Southampton in the fact that they've got such a bad injury crisis. You know, um, you know, we talked about teams having problems with injuries. Southampton really had, a, you know, really a proper crisis with so many injured players out. I think they had nine first team players out <clears throat> for the game against Manchester United. And to be honest, watching the game once they had the sending off within the first two minutes, was it? Um, the game was. It, I've never, I've never watched a game more. With the feeling that they should just call this game, like they should just end the game like a boxing match, you know, um, at half time, really. It was like one of those games where you just, you knew there was nothing else going to happen. Um, United had killed the game. Southampton were just, you know, I felt kind of sorry for a lot of their young players, you know, having to, to, to kind of go through it, to be honest, with 10 men. You know, some of them were making, you know, if not their professional debut, um, as Jankovic got sent off, it, then it was one of their, you know, first, first appearances or a hand, handful of appearances. Uh, in front of an empty stadium as well, so it, it almost felt like there was nothing, nothing left for them. And um, yeah, United managed to rack up the rack up the goals. Uh, you're right with Hassan Hutu, It's pretty worrying to lose two games nine 0 I think you can accept it once because you, you know, everyone has a freak result every now and then. And the you know they shifted the narrative pretty well and and they recovered really well. And you know they were top of the league at one point in this season. When you have a second one, it's like a, just to think a bit of a horrible feeling of deja vu really isn't it and I think mm. the fact that they I think maybe even more worrying is the fact they lost to Newcastle um I know they've still got a lot of injuries and now they've brought in Minamino who maybe could be able to help them but it's it's almost like all the good work that he's done over that since that last 9-0 is kind of erased now and they're kind of back to square one again um I thought it was pretty worrying and even in his press conference after the game Old Trafford he looked seriously like you know here the here we go again meme type thing you know like um <laughs> completely dejected and 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 just having to like explain himself all over again it just seems like it's almost like they've just taken a, a shift back to where they were and I'm not going to say it's erased all the good work he's done but it, it, it's kind of put it into a new light and it's raised I think a lot of question marks about him which you know 
for so long this season he's been talked about in such glowing praise and that that kind of almost erased it in one in one game yeah and for you John what do you think about Southampton this season it's something I've been thinking about and I don't know whether you two agree but sometimes I think Hasenhutl is nearly and in in some instances it's a very good trade to have but he's nearly too tub thunking and zealously committed to his style of play and to his philosophy of the high press and the high line and intensity and you know, sometimes you need to cut your cloth accordingly and kind of drop back that defensive line and play more conservatively. And I think when you're down to 10 men after a minute and a half at Old Trafford, it's probably the right time to do that. So in some ways, they were kind of naive. Like, they were always, always going to lose that game after that red card. But I think they kind of nearly... And that this isn't to uh, denigrate United's efforts at all because you still have to show up and score nine goals and they don't so with a plan. But sometimes I think you just gotta you just gotta cut your cough accordingly tactically and kind of drop back and not play into the opposition's hands. And in that regard, they were a bit naive, I guess. Though, like Jonathan mentioned, a lot of inexperienced players. That's just probably par for the course where they are right now. Yeah, I think it was a good sign though, maybe that you know they were kind of had the killer instinct to kind of go for them and really go for the nine, you know, try and break the record instead of easing off like a lot of teams would have done in the situation. But uh, but yeah, then at the weekend, United played Everton. Drew three all, quite a thrilling game. Everton had just beaten Leeds two one uh, midweek at Ellen Road, and they were recovering from a Newcastle defeat, a two 0 Newcastle defeat last Saturday. And um, yeah, it was a very interesting game because uh, after the Leeds game, you know, Everton wanted to continue to build in that momentum and kind of put in a real battling, kind of tactically aware performance. Um, Tom Davies sitting in the base of midfield, putting in a very good show and um, kind of really proving a lot of doubters wrong still only a very young player and then obviously James Rodriguez who maybe didn't have the best of games on the ball but did score a fantastic goal at Old Trafford nice kind of take and arrowed finish um, Jonathan what are your thoughts on Everton first of all in terms of how they set up against United I thought Everton set up really well pre-match and, and I thought Ancelotti's tactics um, with the diamond in the midfield and obviously looking to get in between the lines with James uh, and create sort of um, 1v1 situations for Richarlison and and, and Lewin um, against United's centre backs or in between you know in between half spaces. I thought it was really I thought they set up very well. The problem was the execution and um, you know Hammers had a stinker of a first half. Really, he he couldn't execute and you know the number of forward passes he was able to to pull off was was really low. And United kind of did what they did in the sense that, that United always seemed to be able to create a chance out of nothing. Case in point, the Bruno Fernandes goal, which is you know one of the goals of the season, in, in my opinion, a, a brilliant strike, um, just full of nonchalance, and yeah, a really, a really, really nicely executed. But but I'd never even at two 0 at half time, I didn't really feel like Everton were out of it, just because the way they were they were shaped up, I thought they 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 would create some opportunities, and of course they did, and they came back in, into the game. Um, you know, United should defend it a lot better. Um, there was a lot of talk of De Gea, but I thought the I thought the back four were pretty poor, you know, individually. Um, Maguire, in particular, Harry Maguire, had, you know, was really struggling one v one against Cavalu and Richarlison in situations where balls were played in behind in behind United's back line, um, and also defending set pieces, you know, like for the equaliser. Uh, so no, I thought I, I I like where Everton are going under Ancelotti. It's kind of weird to think that if they win their games in hand, they're above Liverpool, and you know we're entering mm. sort of final third of the season now. That's usually something that's out of the question, isn't it? Everton finishing above Liverpool. Um, at this sort of at this sort of stage of the campaign, is usually something that's not really going to happen. So, the fact that they're still kind of hanging around, they're hovering around there with, I think, one of the probably weaker squads in the, in the top six. They don't have the, the the depth to to properly probably challenge. But the fact that they're still 
you know, hanging in and around there, I think is a testament to to Ancelotti's managerial capabilities. Yeah, I think one of the kind of, you know, key things about Ancelotti is he actually improved so many Everton players. Like, you know, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, he's taking his game to the next level. Tom Davies, as I mentioned, he's using Richardson very, very intelligently. And then, of course, players coming in like Alan and uh, Ducore have really kind of lifted the standard around the, the club. And Luca Dean just coming back from injury too is obviously a big boost. Um, but for you, John, watching this game, it was quite a frenetic one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And I think Ancelotti kind of salvaged the game in the second half by somewhat taking the handbrake off. I thought everything were a little bit, I won't say meek, that's too strong, but they were a little bit risk averse in the first half and they just tried to seem to frustrate United a lot. But once they kind of started to commit men forward, you could see it actually in Decore running beyond the strikers to get his goal, which is okay, fair enough. It's a De Gea mistake, but still, you know, you... You, you don't win a lot of if you bump by the ticket and he took that risk and took that gamble and ran forward he was rewarded for it so I thought that once Ancelotti kind of released the Kraken so to speak that Everton looked far better and he probably uh, regrets uh, not doing it from the get-go but I think uh, it's been a really good week for them of course that win at Leeds and then a draw at Old Trafford two really credible results but uh, if I were an Evertonian I'd be pulling my hair out at the Newcastle home defeat because if they had won that then you know the narrative of their season could be completely different with the derby set to come up. But yeah, I think they had an excellent week, but it just brings me on to my next point that the real benefactors this week were once again, Manchester City. Um, Obviously United dropping points to Everton means they have a five point, uh, they have a five point lead over their, over their red neighbors and uh, they have a game in hand and they won their first game at Anfield since 2003, triumphing 4-1 over Liverpool, despite the fact that Ilkay Gundogan missed the penalty. So, it was a statement win for them. And I think it was realistically the win that won them the title. Not that I expected Liverpool to come close to challenging it at this at this stage. Yeah, I think it was a remarkable game, wasn't it? City winning 2-0 at Burnley during the week and then following it up with the 4-1 victory at Liverpool, who also lost to Brighton midweek. Um, but yeah, it was a really interesting game. You know, Phil Foden obviously stood out playing in that false nine position, scoring a fantastic goal. And just kind of, you know, the potency of Man City, even though they missed that early penalty when couldn't again skyed it I think they just seemed really really competent what, what do you think Jonathan yeah I thought they were fantastic I think they've been fantastic for a while um I, th- I, I saw the the West Brom game when they beat them I think it was 5-0 and in the first half they it's the best it's the best I've seen any team play this season for sure they absolutely I know it's well people say only West Brom but they, the way they popped them was was just ridiculous um champagne football like just really really nice to watch um like kind of watching the old Barcelona or Brazil kind of thing it was just sensational positional rotation and, and really back on it as, as they have been in the past. I was pretty critical of Man City uh, earlier in the season when they lost at home to, to Leicester, I think 5-2, uh, lost at Spurs as well. And, and I thought that they were kind of kind of going nowhere, really. And I felt that they, were, they had a real soft, soft centre. But I think two factors have, have completely turned around their season. Um, number one, there's been a change to more of a possession-based game. So Pep Guardiola has actually come out and said um, in, in, in recent weeks, that he he changed the game the, the team's style of play um, after their defeats and and sort of decided to to run less you know make make less runs basically so they're running they're doing less running um, with with the ball um, he's just he said that they should go back to more of a possession style and keep the ball you know don't run when you don't need to essentially so running when you're out of possession but in possession let the ball do the work and 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 not you know to try and manage the sheer number of games and the intensity just kind of essentially rest a little bit more on, on the ball. And I think that's really helped them um, help the energy levels because out of possession now, 
I think they they've improved slightly um, in, in, in their pressing and their, and their, sh- their defensive shape as well. You know, that's just helped them get back to their old kind of style. I think. And then I think the second factor is, is I suppose you could have part one and part two of this, but I think Ruben Diaz. I think he's one of the signings mm. of the season. Um, I know someone who, who works in, in Portuguese football and he raves about him and he he says his mentality. He, I mean, maybe he's slightly biased because he, he loves, uh, he raves about Bruno and he raves about Ruben Diaz in terms of their mentality. Uh, and, you know, he, he kind of knows, knows them quite in terms of, he knows the, the players and the background behind them. And he praises both of them for the level of their mentality, how well they, um, how, how committed they are, how determined they are to win. And I think Diaz has just brought a new dimension to Manchester City's defence. Uh, I know he gave away the penalty against Liverpool, but uh, uh, apart from that, he's been almost spotless, really, really committed defender. And he's also formed a really good partnership with with, part, with uh, John Stones, who I'd say is part, part two. I thought Stones was really, really good at Anfield. I thought he he um, he looked on a, a new level to what I've seen of him in, in the past year or so. And just that defensive foundation that City really lacked, haven't they? They lacked that last season and I think they liked it in the early part of this season but they've they've come together now you know in the beginning of the season he was playing sort of Nathan Ake wasn't he and he was experimenting um, Pep with his defence and he's now just found those two and, and kind of settled with it and I know Cancelo as well has been really good but I think Ruben Diaz has been phenomenal so I think when you have a dominant presence as centre back it just changes the entire team doesn't it and I think also someone like Ruben Diaz who is kind of maybe even not like a typical Guardiola defender you could say in terms of he's a defender first and foremost but I think he brings an authority to the back lane that's really impressive. And I think the point you made about his personality is also very adept because, you know, both him and Fernandez both have that kind of assertive, kind of constantly talking, kind of really kind of strong personalities to come into a team. Like, and it can be difficult to come to the Premier League from Portugal directly, you know. It's definitely a, a big leap. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I, if I may just add, add to that just quickly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that, City have lacked for, for quite a while. It's someone who who really loves defending, if that makes sense. Probably probably since Vincent Company, and I, I felt that I felt the City kind of all just drifted in the last year or two with their recruitment strategies. You know, when they lost Company, I, I felt like they really didn't address that. Um, and I think they've needed a striker as well, which they they haven't quite addressed yet. But they've been able to to, to kind of not not need one maybe to a certain extent with Aguero out. Um, Jesus still not really establishing himself, but. Just someone who loves defending, I think that they've got that now. Diaz has got that about him. He, you know, he 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 enjoys the blocks, the cross, um, you know, getting rid of defensive clearances or heading the ball out. He enjoys that defensive side of it, which which I've not really seen for City for 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 a year or two, I think, since company maybe. And just having that, rather than maybe at times, you know, they're playing say midfielders in defence and maybe more ball playing defenders or, or trying to play a different style of, of defending. I think that's really just changed, and they've gone back to basics. And I think that's really, it's it's worked for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It was quite very funny seeing him adjust Sinchenko's head as well uh, behind the wall for the, one of the free kicks. But uh, but John, for you, what, what do you think of Man City's performance on, uh, on Sunday, and uh, and how do you think they matched up against Liverpool? Yeah, there was a there was a real confidence and intent from City from minute one. I thought that Liverpool kind of marshaled them well for the first maybe half hour or so, uh, despite giving away a penalty, which is more I think about a bit of magic from Sterling than anything else. But after that, they just really started to take control. I thought Gundogan was excellent. I thought Rodri was excellent. Rodri has really improved. And uh, just to add to the points that Jonathan made, I think he is a big uh, facet of their improvement lately. City have been really playing like a shape that's more akin to a 2-3-5 with their two centre-halves and then their full-backs tucked in either side of Rodri. And I think that gives them a lot of protection. I used to wonder whether he had the requisite kind of physicality and mobility of Fernandinho to anchor a midfield with two free eights by himself. 
and he was exposed somewhat at times last season, but he looks far more in tune now and he's been helped out by the two fullbacks who are flanking him, so to speak. Yeah, I, I thought I thought they were uh, I thought they were very good. You mentioned Phil Foden. He was excellent. I thought Liverpool kind of struggled to deal with his movements. Uh, he was popping up all over the pitch. And it's just made me think about how Foden, Madison and Grealish could be like the Aldi version of Gerrard, Scholes and Lampard. It's a, it's a nice headache for England to have going forward. Yeah, that was so good. The goal was just fantastic, I thought. Not just the way he scored it, but the way he celebrated it too. The way he kind of wheeled away. But like, I, what I found watching him was that, you know, I knew he was good. Everyone knows he's a good player and he's been used sparingly so far by Guardiola. But it was the the level he was playing at, like Jonathan, like for me, I was blown away by it. Like, like he really was like, I don't want to say like Messi, but he, he was that kind of character, that small diminutive false nine who was just like, looked like he could do anything. He's, he's unbelievable. He's a he's a real talent, and um, I think you know we're all kind of watching lockdown football, aren't we? And there's no fans, and 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 let's be honest, I think the quality has dipped slightly in in recent weeks, partly because of just the number of backlog of games. But when you look at players who kind of get you off your seat or excite you when they get on the ball, um, I think Grealish is one of them as well. Where when there's a when Villa are playing, you kind of want to watch Grealish, don't you? You want to see someone who plays a bit differently, and I think Phil Foden's another one. He he um. Just is, I, I thought the the goal was was incredible. Just the, the the pace of the shot and and you know the instinctiveness about it was just and just the quick feet was so good. But I think the the assist um, for uh, when he intercepted from from Allison, I think that was arguably better because you enter that situation quite a lot in, in football matches and and to turn that from what where he, he he received the ball into the assist and basically laying it on a plate. Um, you know the easiest chance for for um, for a tap in you, you can find the way he he, he held off two players under pressure, um, the technical ability and the strength to hold them off, um, to get into the box, and then to sort of choose the right pass as well, have the, have the maturity, um, the quick feet, like just the technique. I, I thought that was just superb. And you know, I, I talked. Um, I've been talking about sort of Manchester United in in, in, in recent days, and just. That although Man United are doing really, really well, I still think I still feel they might they may regress at some point because uh, unless maybe if if um the wide players like Martial, Greenwood, and, and Rashford maybe increase their productivity um in terms of expected goals, expected assists, um and Foden just demonstrated that like like that that killer instinct in the in the final third. I think I think for example if we take Rashford in in the Everton game, there were situations similar to that where Rashford he, he often chooses the, the wrong pass or he often just takes an extra touch where it's not needed. And I, you know, I'm not not, you know, he's having a great season. Don't get me wrong, but for someone at 20, Foden to to have that just killer instinct in that situation, um, in what in for what was actually quite a difficult, I think quite quite, quite a difficult situation to create, um, basically a tap in for for a fellow player, was unbelievable. I, I think he's really really good, and I think England, of course, you know, you've got Callum Hudson Odoi, you've got Jaden Sancho, and you've got Phil Foden as kind of like that holy trinity of youth players. You know, they won the under 17 World Cup together. And who knows where they could go in the future? That that's a, a real exciting trio for any uh, anyone who uh, supports England, of course, or is English. Of course, and perhaps maybe Dominic Calvert-Lewin leading the line, the, uh, the Everton number nine. But uh, but yeah, anyway, we spoke about Lionel Messi um, as a comparative to Phil Foden, and he was at it again last night in uh, in down south in Seville, uh, basically coming on when Barcelona were playing Real Betis and they were losing when he came on quickly came on and equalized uh just i think it was within two or three minutes really really good finish typical kind of late stage messy from outside the box 
so they won 3-2 against Real Betis um, to go seven points behind Atletico Madrid, who were leading La Liga. They're also seven points clear of Real Madrid. And then Sevilla are in fourth, um, who are uh, eight points behind. Sevilla won 3-0 against Getafe. Um, Real Madrid won 2-1 against Huesca after going a goal down. It's actually the first time they've come back to win a game after going a goal down this season which is quite a remarkable stat. Um, but yeah, so Atletico are playing Celta tonight, Celta Vigo, in a big game. If they win, they go 13 points clear at the top, sorry, 10 points clear at the top of the table. Uh, and they have all of two games in hand as well, which is quite remarkable. But um, but yeah, I guess, have you guys been following the uh, Spanish uh, title race this season? Um, Jonathan, what are your thoughts on Atletico so far? Yeah, I think they're being carried by by Suarez to a certain extent, aren't they? I think he's he's done done really well there and kind of stuck one in the eye of Barcelona, who who probably regretting how they handled that situation. Um, I caught some of the, the highlights from the Betis-Barcelona um, game yesterday. And of course, Messi Messi coming off the bench and, and doing what Messi does. It's kind of sad that in England, we don't get the don't get the coverage unless you, you find certain ways to watch it. Uh, you know, I, I, wish they, I wish that maybe Sky or BT maybe bought the rights um, for this because it, it could well be for Messi's final season. And I think it's maybe underappreciated that we're potentially witnessing the end of... of one of the greatest eras in sports history, not only football. Um, so the the further the season goes on, the more it ticks down to potentially, um, you know, a, a messy exit, which would be, I don't, I, don't think, like, I don't think anyone's really kind of really thought about it, if you know what I mean. Like no one's really realised that this is this is nearly the end maybe um, of, of just the defining era maybe of our of our lifetime in terms of, of, of football um, as, as, as supporters. So... I would like to have watched him more, to be honest. I haven't seen as many games as, as I would like, but yeah, he came on and and, and did what he does. Um, I, I think it's a really sad situation, what's happening there. But um, to go back to Atletico, of course, they've got a huge opportunity now to, to win the league. And um, I think maybe John might, might have some more comments on, on Atletico. Yeah, because we talked about the rejuvenating impact that uh, Juan Leo has had at, uh, at Manchester City with Pep Guardiola, maybe bring them back to basics in terms of possession football somewhat. But then after Alessio Madrid lost their legendary uh, bear of an assistant manager, Herman Burgos, people will recognize him. He was an ex-goalkeeper. He was absolutely massive with a big shock of hair. Uh, after after he left, uh, they were they hired Nelson Vivas to assist Diego Simeone. And, you know, in some ways, it's been more of the same in terms of the defensive uh, record. They've only conceded 10 goals so far this season, which is, I think, uh, the best in the top five leagues in Europe. But then on the other side, they've actually improved going forward and they've experimented with different shapes and formations. Uh, traditionally, for the last, he's nearly even there a decade at this stage, I guess, they've played primarily 4-4-2 or 4-4-1-1 variations thereof. But this season, they've experimented with three at the back and they've played more kind of fluid formations and you know they've scored a lot more than they would have in previous seasons. Uh, a lot of that is obviously down to the attacking talents of Luis Suarez, but Joao Felix is also producing a lot. Uh, Angel Correa is, uh, has been as potent as he's been for a while. So uh, even the likes of uh, Tom Lamar and Yannick Ferreira Carrasco are also kind of chipping in with goals and big moments. So uh, I was just like w- wondering, Alan, would that be, would, would you pin that all on uh, Vivas or on Suarez or is that kind of too simple? Well, I think last season, Simeone was always referring to the year as a transition year kind of transitioning from one era to the next. Um, and they've done that very well, I think. They, they did transition last season. They finished third, level on points in Sevilla and fourth. Um, but this year, they just seem very different, as you mentioned. Like, I think it's been a combination of factors, really, because 
when you have a goal scorer like Suarez come into the team and not just a goal scorer, but somebody who's got a fire under their arse, you know, like really wants to stick it to Barcelona, really wants to prove that they're not past it, especially given the way he was kind of chased out of Barcelona almost. It was quite ignominious for a player who's contributed as much to the club as he has. So when he comes in with that kind of mentality to really kind of prove them wrong and kind of go at them, you could say, it lifts the whole team. And then that's combined by... Uh, as you mentioned, Joao Felix dovetailing with him, kind of a very different player to him in stylistically, but also in terms of where he is in his career. He's only qu- quite young still. He's kind of developing as a player, but he has that spiky personality. And I think that the two of them working together really works well because Suarez can kind of, you know, press on, focus on what he does best, which is being a killer, as they say in Spain. You know, he's a killer in the box. And Joao can do his running for him. And then they're also flanked by players like, as you mentioned, Thomas Lamar and Yannick Carrasco, who are talented guys, but they've been underperforming in recent years. And this season, they just have kicked into gear. And then also, I think, you know, the second most important thing for Atletico for me is actually Jan Oblak, the goalkeeper. I think he's the best goalkeeper in the world at the moment. He's just an absolute phenomenon, really. Uh, the way he plays is just remarkable. And when you have somebody like that in goal for you, um, it just inspires confidence throughout the whole team. So, yeah, I think they're in a really good place. Um, very strong, balanced team. As you mentioned, they can attack and they can also defend. Uh, and I think, you know, barring a calamitous uh, disaster, uh, they should win the title. What are you thinking, John? Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I just kind of wanted to bring it back to Messi in a weekend where people are waxing lyrical over the GOAT status of Tom Brady. I mean, uh, in your opinions, is Messi the best ever? I, I think we're all about the same age group so he's certainly the best of our generation of football fans but would you say he's the best ever oh i think yeah it's like it's such a difficult question isn't it like you know who's the best ever like is it the most talented player ever the most the player who's contributed most to the game ever it's a very hard thing to kind of break down like i think that the impact maradona had when he came into napoli for instance and with argentina is unparalleled but it's also not possible in modern football for a player to go to a, you know, a club like Napoli, who was a regional power, and to lift them from the doldrums of mediocrity to you know, champions of, of Europe, you know, the, the UEFA Cup, and also to win two Scudettos. It's quite remarkable. And I think in terms of sheer talent, nobody can touch Maradona, in my opinion, from the clips I've watched him and from the games I've watched him play. Um, but I think if you look at a footballer, what he contributed, not just statistically, but also in terms of... You know, like Jonathan mentioned earlier, getting you up off your seat, the kind of joy he transmits on the pitch, the way he plays the game, the things he does, his consistency. I don't think you can touch Lionel Messi. You know, that's just my personal opinion. I think he's the greatest footballer to have ever lived. What are your thoughts, John? Do you think, who do you think? Yeah, I just, it, it's so hard to c- compare across eras, but like people sometimes would, would say Pele would be the best, but I mean, Pele never played in Europe. And I mean, he, w- he would have like played in some World Cups where the teams weren't even fully professional. So, I mean, it- it's hard to really measure them against each other. But certainly, from my vantage point, it-, it has to be Messi. He's phenomenal. And it has to be Messi precisely because Messi is not like a freak of athletic ability like Cristiano Ronaldo is. He can't rely on this massive jumping reach, this unbelievable strength, this bursting pace not that he's slow but like he is all football he is just like the condensed liquefied pure form of technical football so i don't think i don't think we'll see the likes of him for a very very long time i plan to live a long time but i, I don't <laughs> in my lifetime like we'll see another Lino messi 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. What are your thoughts, Jonathan? I know it's kind of an endless debate, you know, between him and Ronaldo and him and other eras, but like, where do you think he ranks in terms of the greatest ever now that he is on a bit of a decline? Yeah, it's always it's always difficult to compare. And I think obviously they say a uh, comparison is the, was it the, I can't remember now, the mother of all, <laughs> something like that. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, thief of all joy, says John. Thank you very much. Um yeah, exactly. Comparisons of people with joy. And I think we should just be grateful for the fact that they, they exist during this era. As John says, you know, we're, we're grateful to be alive at this time to witness. I'm not sure if we'll witness anything like this again in our lifetimes. I don't, that's what I kind of was alluding to earlier. I don't think people realize, um, the fact that Messi's about to sort of end, maybe end his time at Barcelona. This is like, this is huge. You know, this is, this is the last dance, Michael Jordan style kind of stuff. Um, you know, and, and, um, we'll be talking about this forever, like this, this season. You know, it's, it's really sad that there's no fans. I, I almost feel like Messi may be slightly tempted to stay just to have one more season with fans, but I don't know if that's practically going to be possible. Um, you know, he backed down pretty quickly from that, the whole legal thing at the end of last season, and I don't think he really, really wanted to leave, to be honest, um, because Barcelona is his home. He's, you know, he's an all-time legend. The amount of goals he scored, um, and I just think sometimes he, it goes a bit un, underappreciated that I, I never saw Maradona play live, so I can't. I can't. It's really hard for me to comment. I think Maradona was unlucky in the sense that he played an era with a lot less protection. You know, Messi. Who knows what, where Messi's career would have gone with 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 the you know the amount of rough two footed tackles that Maradona had to take week in week out. So you, you can't really. It's really hard to predict. But um, one thing's for sure. Like you know, I, I think Messi has almost gone gone underrated throughout his career. I think he's he's that good. Um, you know, just every single week he, he pulls out something that is almost been normalized. I, I was really fortunate enough and it's something I'll remember, like take with me forever. I was at the last ever Ronaldo Messi El Clasico. Um, I, I, re- I originally went to go and watch Iniesta cause it was, you know, he was leaving and it was going to be obviously his last, uh, Clasico. And I was like, I need to be at that game. So I, I bought a ticket and it was pretty, pretty expensive. But I was like, I'm getting myself out to Barcelona. I'm, I'm going to do it while I can. And, um, Obviously, that turned out to be Ronaldo's last game as well because he, he that end of that season he went to to Juventus and that was a little bit un, unexpected in, in 2018. Um, but yeah, just to witness both of them playing, it's been a, a, a privilege, I think. And you know, like I say, we we will be talking about this f- for the rest of our lives. Pe- There's no player now in in football right now who will come to anywhere near, in my opinion, Messi and Ronaldo. The next the next phase of football debate is going to be, you know, let's say let's say arguably, for example, Mbappe against Haaland, maybe maybe. They're nowhere near Messi and Ronaldo in terms of uh, in terms of level. Um, we the, the the defining conversation of the next twenty five years in football is going to be: Is there going to be another Messi? Is there going to be another Ronaldo? Like w- once those two retire, that's going to be the defining conversation. People are going to be talking about it for probably the rest of our lifetimes because it is genuinely an era of, of total dominance and greatness. And you only have to look at their records, their longevity. You know, and sometimes, like I say, we we get caught in the moment of we, we kind of take it for granted. Like I say, I think I think I think a lot of people are taking it for granted. I really do. Um, how good they've been, how, how how successful they've been over such a long period of time, year after year. So I just stand it from a, a perspective of gratitude and, and just really happy that I've seen both of them live and been able to witness greatness. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, they've made each other better, haven't they? Like I think Ronaldo's pursuit of excellence has in turn driven Messi and vice versa, you know? So you they really are kind of inseparable from each other, you could say. Um, but yeah, 
But yeah, of course, Messi is the kind of the star of the Barcelona team. He's the man who makes everything happen. It was interesting, actually, when they were playing Granada in the Copa midweek um, and they got back to 2-2 um, in the 94th minute. And as everybody was celebrating like mad, Messi included, he turned and he kind of went, calm down now, guys, you know, focus in, focus in. And it was caught by the video cameras. And um, it was interesting because, you know, so often he's portrayed as like this kind of silent leader. But in reality, he actually is quite an important presence in the team a different form of leadership to some, you could say, but very much a kind of reference for Barcelona. But then aside from Messi in that Barcelona team, there's some interesting things happening. Uh, Antoine Griezmann has really come into his own. He's six goals so far in 2021. He's flying, like genuinely flying. He's playing in the left forward role. And he's kind of accepted, like last season, I felt that he was kind of jostling with Messi and Suarez to be the main kind of main focus points in, in, the, in the final third. Whereas this year, he's kind of learned his place. He's learned that he's there to supplement Messi, not to kind of, you know, try and steal his limelight. And he's really developing really a good relationship with him on the pitch. And then there's also joined by Pedri, who's a very exciting young prospect playing in midfield. And then also Frankie de Jong, who's absolutely flying this season, especially since the turn of the new year. Um, basically, he was kind of initially playing in a double pivot with Sergio Busquets in a 4 2 3 one and then that didn't work necessarily. The Barcelona press were going a bit mad about it. Didn't like the break from the 4-3-3. So they shifted back to a 4-3-3, played Sergio as a holding midfielder, and then put Frankie in kind of a breaking eight role, basically. And he's he's flying, kind of really playing with Yagada, as they say in Spain, in terms of getting into the box, scoring goals, contributing assists. He's flying. So I, I think it's interesting because I, I think that what could encourage Messi to stay at Barcelona, and we'll talk about Paris Saint-Germain in a little bit but I think that what could actually convince him is this kind of burgeoning youth around him and the likes of Pedri the likes of De Jong these kind of players who can take things to the next level and Ronald Araujo as well as a fantastic centre-back um, so yeah it's very very interesting uh, what's going on there but uh, but touching on France uh, Paris Saint-Germain played Marseille last night they won 2-0 uh, after beating Nîmes 3-0 during the week there was obviously some well-documented Madness going on in the south of France with Marseille uh, in terms of the ultras breaking into the training ground and causing all kinds of havoc. Um, very interesting game, this one. Uh, Dimitri Payet was sent off for this horrendous challenge in Mark of Roddy, really high boot. Um, and Kylian Mbappe scored a f- superb goal. And uh, Mauro Cardi scored a, quite a bizarre goal with his back almost. It was kind of a strange one. But watching this game, Jonathan, what, what do you think of um, how... PSG are progressing under Pochettino. Yeah, it was a strange. Well, I mean, it wasn't strange, but it was. I think it was from a macro point of view, it was a quite strange decision to get rid of Thomas Tuchel. I think he was doing a really good job, and I know there was a lot of criticism, but at the end of the day, I, I think that in this season where there's there's been no no um, no break, you know, PSG had probably the lowest number of days between the last end of last season and the beginning of this season because they they got to the Champions League final. And then the season literally started the end of that week in Liga. Um, so PSG, they were given a two-week grace period. But, you know, two weeks is nothing really between seasons. It's, it's ridiculous. So they struggled with that. And that was where their early season form came. They lost their first game of the season, I think, against Lens. And, you know, there was tension from there, really. And they had some 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 poor results. But I put a lot of that down to the sporting director, Leonardo. There was a lot of tension between him and, him and Tuchel. And that's eventually what what probably facilitated that, that exit but you know I think I think well Pochettino obviously lost it he lost last weekend against Lorient uh, and I don't think that getting rid of Tuchel basically solves the issues that are at, at PSG in my opinion I think the issues are squad related the, the squad is not good enough 
um, for a club like PSG, essentially. Just they've lost a lot of players, Thiago Silva, um, you know, Cavani. They, they've lost some, some, some players from last season and haven't really been able to, to replace them with sufficient quality. You know, they've brought in a few players, Florenzi and, and, and players like that. But, you know, we're talking about PSG and, and their, their, their desire to be the dominant force in Europe. And I, I don't think their recruitment reflected that. And I think that came down to, to Leonardo and that's where the tension came because Tuchel was not happy with the fact that he hadn't got what he wanted maybe in terms of um, re- new recruits. Uh, and so they're having to sort of go with, with what they've had, what they've got. They've obviously got two amazing players, Mbappe and, and Neymar. And of course, Di Maria is, is in the supporting cast, but they've, they've had a lot of injuries and um, that's kind of allowed teams like Lille and, and uh, Leon to, to kind of... Um, you know, be ahead of them at this moment in time and, and, and challenge them for the title. The game itself was, you know, it's kind of where we are with the, the Marseille-PSG derbies now. Um, PSG just completely dominated. It. it used to be a game where it was really fiery and, and you know, one of the, you know, I used to work as a, an analyst in French football and it's like the showpiece game. But uh, in my personal opinion, I think Santetti and Lyon now is, is, is a better derby. I think it's more, it's more evenly balanced and it's more, you know, Marseille PSG is quite one-sided now. It's quite, it's almost sadistic watching it. To be honest, it's like you you want Marseille to do well, but they're just not going to. And they they you know, the backstory of this was obviously the fact that you know when PSG lost the Champions League final, Payet went on Instagram and and did a little a video mocking PSG and the fact that Marseille are the only French team to win the the European Cup and and um and of course then there was the, 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 there was a backlash from that when they first met this season and that's kind of continued obviously Payet getting sent off and Neymar had something to say about that. They've, they've been going back and forth at each other, but Marseille just, they're nowhere near PSG on, on the pitch. And so they really have to kind of stick to social media digs, to, to be honest, to, to have any kind of dominance over PSG at the moment. And it's sad because, you know, Marseille are a giant of a club, to be honest. They're, they're probably bigger than PSG in terms of support um, around the world. If you look at that, the French, you know, for example, former French colonies and that kind of thing. If you look at Francophone countries, uh, places like Senegal, La Réunion, which I spent a lot of time in, uh, where Payet's actually from, um, it's just like a Marseille island, basically. Uh, everybody supports Marseille pretty much. I know PSG fans might, might, might disagree with this, but, you know, Marseille are a huge club and it's just, they've, they've been reduced to kind of just a, a, a kind of nothing team. Um, it's probably the one game that PSG actually get up for. So paradoxically, where PSG sometimes struggle with motivation um, and that's what leads to them losing games like Lorient. When it's Marseille, they they know what's at stake and they turn up and and they usually have too much on Marseille. Mbappe's goal was quality, you know, and the, the show of speed and it was almost him back to his best, you know, just bursting through and and the counter attack and and the you know the extreme speed, lightning speed in the finish. But yes, it's a it's a strange derby, really. It, it, it needs it needs it needs some you 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 want a better Marseille really to to give it some some uh, some clout. And there's been rumours of maybe takeover bids and that kind of thing you know, maybe some inject- injection of finance to Marseille to maybe allow them to challenge. But at this moment in time, really, the two teams to talk about in terms of challenging PSG are, are um, Leon and, and Lille. Mm, yeah. And, and John, for you, what do you make of Leon and, uh, and Lille and how they're kind of putting together a quiet bid for the Leon title this season? Um, Lille, two points clear, of course, to top the table, three points clear of PSG as uh, Leon are second. I'm really surprised by Lille because of all the uncertainty that's around the club. Like a lot of people were saying that they would nearly go into receivership and there was all this talk of financial doom and gloom and like collapse and their, a lot of their star players, even including Sven Botman, were linked with moves away. But uh, they've managed to tie it all together and they're still top of the table, surprisingly so, uh, in my opinion. Uh, they've uh, 
with Louis Campos in charge of the transfers there, they have a really interesting crop of young players. The likes of Jonathan Davis, uh, Botman, like I mentioned, Renato Sanchez. So they're and they play a nice style of uh, kind of attacking, uh, pressing football. So they're, they're an interesting team to watch. But uh, I'm surprised that they've kind of lasted the pace like they have. Uh, Leon as well are kind of in, kind of in a similar boat. They have a lot of interesting younger players, the likes of Hassan Moir, uh, Lucas Paqueta on loan from uh, Milan. And uh, they've lost, uh, they lost Musa Dembele, of course, to Atletico Madrid, but they still seem to have retained a lot of level of consistency. And uh, I'd like to see someone that isn't PSG win Ligue 1 this year. PSG, I think, inevitably will win it in the end. But it'd be just nice to see someone else do it. I think the last team that weren't PSG to win it were Monaco. And then you have to go back to Montpellier in like 2011 for the time before that. So it's nearly been an unbridled and unbroken stretch of uh, Paris Saint-Germain victories. So I'd love to see someone, particularly a team with younger players with an attacking identity, uh, kind of break their deadlock off uh, the French League. Yeah, certainly. And Monaco too, of course, are kind of in fourth place, uh, kind of building quietly as well in the background. They won at the weekend, so they're perhaps within 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 in with a shout to uh, mount an outside challenge. Maybe who knows? Um, but yeah. And then just touching back on the Neymar and Mbappe situation, it's very interesting because in Spain, for instance, the Spanish press are obsessing over it every single day. There's new reports of uh, both of their contract renewal situations. Obviously, uh, reports claim that Neymar is very, very close to signing a four-year deal. And I think the story with Mbappe is that he's open to signing a deal because Madrid maybe don't have the financial strength to engineer a move for him this uh, summer as they had intended to. But he wants to match Neymar's reported 32 million euros per annum salary. So I just wanted to ask you about that, Jonathan. What do you think about their situation, Mbappe's situation at, at PSG? Because he's not his usual self, is he? His goal aside, he's not performing at the same level this season as he was previously. And also how that might impact on their pursuit of Lionel Messi. Yeah, it's a good question. And um, I think COVID has the potential to rescue PSG's short to medium term future. Because I think personally, if we were in a parallel universe where COVID had never happened, I think Mbappe is leaving in the summer, 100%. I think, um, you know, contract till 2022, your best, your biggest asset, probably the most marketable player. I think there was a CIAES report that said he's one of the, you know, he's one of the most valuable players in the world. How would you allow his contract to go to the last year? That, that to me screams, I want out. I think the only thing that's going to stop that maybe is Real Madrid not having the financial resources to, to, to pull off a blockbuster deal. I think Real Madrid, arguably, they didn't sign anyone, I think, if I'm right in saying, last summer. I think they were saving up potentially for a blockbuster deal like an Mbappe. Uh, and I still think there's question marks whether they'll be able to afford him. So um, Barcelona definitely won't be able to afford him because they're bankrupt. So uh, I think I think, I think think COVID potentially will save PSG from having to, you know, get, having to lose. Uh, uh, Mbappe, you know, he, he's in a situation where he can back them into a corner now with one year left. You know, you don't want him leaving for free, that's for sure. So um, he he holds all the cards really to a certain extent. And from a personal point of view, not I mean, I probably already upset PSG once on this podcast by saying, you know, must say a bigger, a bigger, a bigger uh, have a bigger fan base in certain Francophone countries. But I'm going to upset them twice now by saying I, I'd like to see Mbappe leave PSG. To be honest, um, I think he's what 22 now, uh, so I think this is the time for him to maybe move on I feel like PSG kind of they, they, they it's a bit like they with Neymar and I think I think you know um, you, you mentioned there about the title race I think I think PSG will win the league if Neymar stays fit and and sort of refocuses because I think those two have enough about them but 
you know, Neymar misses a lot of games with injuries and he's 29 now. He's, he's not a spring chicken in terms of fitness and, and, you know, the rumours about his party lifestyle, that kind of thing. He nearly, he, he started on the bench and there was rumours that he, you know, he, it was his birthday a few days before that. And, you know, he missed training the next day because he had a, a stomach in, a problem apparently, you know, and there was rumours about, well, you know, I think vodka, vodka doesn't help the stomach, does it? So that, you know, there was rumours about maybe why he had that stomach problem the day after his birthday. But, um, you know, I, I just think that they're not always that focused because they, they know it's kind of like they, when they turn up, they, they can do it. And they don't have that consistent pressure, maybe that they do if they were maybe a Barcelona or a different team. Um, you know, they they tend to save their best football for the Champions League, or they they really look sharp and up, up for it when it comes to Champions League time. But they do have lapses. Um, so it, it, it's it's going to be really really interesting. And I, I think in general, this is you know to to widen this discussion out a bit before we maybe conclude. But this is going to be this summer is going to be huge because you've got Messi out of contract, you've got Aguero out of contract, you've got Mbappe with one year left on his deal, you've got Neymar sort of. He'll probably stay at PSG now. It's looking like he's going to sign a long-term deal. and Sergio Ramos as well. Yeah, that's probably, maybe that's Neymar admitting that he's not going to go onto the heights that he wanted, you know, in the past, and maybe, arguably. Um, but yeah, Ramos, you've got, um, you've got, Alaba. yeah, you've got, then you've got Haaland as well, who's potentially is, you know, maybe on the market. Um, this summer's going to be really, really potentially going to change f- um, the dynamics of football to a certain extent. I think who can, who can afford to sign some of these players? Who Who's going to take chances? On, on players um, there's going to be a real it's going to be a really interesting summer I, th- I think in terms of in terms of transfers if anyone can afford to do anything and and on the flip side of that if no one can afford to do anything then you're going to end up with players maybe having to force to stay where they are for a bit longer than they maybe want to which which the dynamics of that how does that affect things you know um, there's rumours of Salah for example he, he, he's already given an interview where he normally doesn't give interviews and a bit of discontent there is, is that one to watch maybe you know does he maybe fancy moving to say Barca to replace Messi there's going to be a lot of, I think, um, movement in the summer. So it will be very interesting to see where those two players go. But um, certainly, I think PSG will be, will be sweating about keeping them back. Yeah, I think the whole plan, according to the Madrid media anyway, was that they go for Mbappe um, this summer, along with Eduardo Camavinga, the Ren uh, midfielder, and then going for Haaland in 2022. Um, but obviously kind of given the financial situation at the moment, that's kind of scuppered somewhat. And also the fact that they don't really have the financial power that they would have had in the past. Um, but but for you, John, what do you think about the transfer market coming up? Who do you think could be the biggest movers and what deals do you think could happen that maybe are not expected right now? I think that it might change the course of the way football clubs operate in terms of uh, their outgoings. Um is there a potential that it'll go maybe like an American sports kind of thing where it'll be more power to players in lieu of clubs having a lot of money and in lieu of clubs not having a lot of money to spend on transfer fees? Could we see a lot of uh, creative accounting and potential of uh, like potential of kind of swap deals and what have you? I think that uh, Jonathan mentioned Salah kind of making making eyes at some of the classical duo. I just don't know if that market exists for him, not because he isn't a brilliant player and not because those two clubs wouldn't be interested in him, just it's contingent on whether they have the financial muscles to be able to pull off such a deal. And I don't think they do at this instance. I think one potential deal you could look at, and it would hinge on Mbappe leaving, is uh, PSG looking at Sadio Mane. Uh, Pochettino tried to sign him when he was at Spurs. Um, I think Mane has a lot of connections to Generation Foot, which works with a lot of second-generation African kids in Paris. So that could potentially be be one to keep an eye on, but it would also uh, depend on uh, 
it would depend on Mbappe leaving, which uh, I wouldn't say it's uh, it's a foregone conclusion on any way, shape, or form, just because I don't see who could be able to afford him. I mean, there's been a lot of talk of Liverpool potentially going in for him, but like Liverpool's model more or less the last few years has been sell to buy, which is great. But I mean, when no one can afford to sell and when no one can afford to buy what you're selling, then that, that market quickly diminishes and then you're left with your strategy not really working anymore. So it could be a summer where the biggest uh, the biggest outgoings are the wages that are paid to free transfer players, the likes of Jorginho Wijnaldum, the likes of Memphis Depay, the likes of maybe David Alaba, of Eric Garcia at, at Manchester City, d- d- these kinds of players that could potentially be, get big contracts for moving uh, for free because I just don't see a lot of clubs having the financial muscle to pull off deals like they used to. I mean, it'll it'll nearly be a season and a half without fans in the stadiums unless something dramatic happens between now and May. And there's a, so much uncertainty around finances, around TV deals in France. So, uh, you know, there could be a lot of speculation, but it mightn't necessarily materialise into anything concrete happening in the market. Yeah, it's a very good point. I think with Liverpool, it's interesting because, in my opinion, they were always kind of prepping for that next cycle because their players are getting on at the same kind of age now at this point, the kind of key players, you could say. I feel like their plan was always to maybe move on, whether it's Salah or Mane, for big money and then reinvest that money in the squad. But now that the market isn't really there for players of that calibre and the money you'd expect to get for them, it's kind of almost derailing their bid to rebuild isn't it like it's kind of interesting oh i i'm absolutely convinced that if the world didn't turn upside down last year that one of salah or Mane would have moved on last summer um you know obviously liverpool fans would miss them they've been a massive part of their revival in the last couple of years but if you were to look at it kind of logically they're both 29 have an insane amount of football in their legs and you know it would be the last real opportunity to extract as much money from them as possible then you know you could you could start to see you could start to see the logic in potentially moving them on, especially for Liverpool, who you know they generally don't miss in the transfer market. They their approach is very very focused. They're not scattergun at all. They hone in on one target and they wait for him. Like with Virgil Van Dijk or Naby Keita, for example, who would have been a far better signing if it, if it wasn't for injuries. I think a lot of people kind of don't consider that when they when they rate Keita's impact at Liverpool. So uh, I think it would have made sense, and they would have probably. I think they might have been in the market for Sancho, perhaps, if they had sold one of them. Uh, Jota came in, and he was also a fantastic signing. Again, testament to the testament to the analytics they use when they're profiling players. But uh, I think in normal times, one of them would certainly move on uh, this coming summer, and probably would have gone last summer. But I mean, the cat is amongst the pigeons now, so to speak, and that cat is dictating how the world is working in terms of football transfers. I think Lionel Messi too holds the key, doesn't he? I think that um, you know. Depending whether he goes to Manchester City or PSG or he stays at Barcelona, I think that that move, when it happens, will cause a serious ripple effect in the world of football. I think other teams will organize themselves accordingly. But uh, but yeah, that's for another day, that conversation. Anyway, we're kind of out of time now, guys. Uh, thanks so much for joining me, Jonathan and John. Uh, Jonathan, where can people find you? Uh, what projects are you working on right now? Do you have any pieces you can plug for me right now? Um... Well, I think we we know the. You can find me on just at just football on Twitter or at JF Football F U T B O L, and obviously at the moment, um, you know, the Nordic Football Podcast we run, we're in preseason at the moment, so that will be coming back quite soon. So you know, we've just written a piece for Weisgat on players to watch in in Norway and Sweden this year, and I'm sure there'll be more of that to come. But yeah, no, um, 
yeah, you can find me around. So I uh, hope you've enjoyed the show and thanks for, for inviting me. Fantastic. Thank you, Jonathan. And John, how about you? Yeah, just you can find me on Twitter at NotoriousJOS. Probably the next thing I'll come out in the pipeline is probably a little bit of a defense of Jurgen Klopp. I feel like a lot of Liverpool fans are unnecessarily getting on his back and asking him why isn't he applying a plan B to Liverpool with terms of tactics, which is also false because he's changed shape a lot in games. And basically the subtext of what I'm saying is it's like rearranging the decking on the Titanic. You can't ask players who are absolutely zapped of energy to start doing new things in such a, in such a condensed season. So it would be a bit of a defense of Jurgen Klopp and that will be out in the next few days. Sounds fascinating. Sounds Anfield Index, is it? Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. So yeah, and then for me, you can find me at Azofili on Twitter. Um, I just released this uh, podcast in conjunction with uh, Lali Gerolam, Ewan McTeer, Roman de Arker, Paco Polish, uh, Gregor Chappelle, basically detailing Sevilla, their history from the 20th century to the 21st century, to their icons, their match day experiences. That's available wherever you get your podcast if you're interested in that. And then also this week, I have a couple of things coming out. Um, a squat a scout on Juan Hordan, the Sevilla midfielder, and then also a little piece on uh, Marcus Lorenzo. The Telecom Madrid midfielder with uh, five yards. So, keep an eye out for that. But uh, yeah, guys, thanks very much for joining me and thanks to the listener for joining me as well. I hope you enjoyed the show and um, hope to see you again soon. Thanks.